0: Well, we've been learning a lot on Saturdays, and you have been on Thursdays, learning a lot um, in Wellspring, haven't you? So welcome back. This is your first time back. Um, One thing we've been learning again and again is that as Christians, we're in a mixed condition, right? And that we need to be renewed every day by progressive sanctification, And you know, our Wellspring Purpose addresses that. So as we do every week, let's flip over those binders. And we're going to remind ourselves of our Wellspring Purpose. It's to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God, so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. You know, from day one in Wellspring, one thing's for sure. We've been hearing a lot about shepherding, haven't we? Shepherding our heart. So here's a question I want to ask you. How would you describe heart shepherding to someone else? You know, one way I like to describe it is I like to call it, um, I like to compare it to parenting because we can all relate, can't we? You know, you don't need to have children, though, to know um, that parenting is a huge responsibility, isn't it? You know, there are no days off, right? We have to do it every minute, every day. We have to just keep doing it uh, for many, many years. And that's kind of like it is with shepherding our hearts. So let's think about parenting for a minute. Just make a quick mental list. Check, check, check. Of all the things a parent is concerned about, practical everyday things. You thinking about it? So maybe you're thinking, "Okay, well, proper nutrition." Or medical care or protection and shelter, clothing. What about the right kind of education that's big on our minds? And of course, wise, child-rearing, and discipline. Well, have you guys figured out where I'm going with this illustration? (laughs) See, Christian, you and I are children of our Heavenly Father. So let's praise God, right, that he's provided everything everything that we need to undertake the daunting task of shepherding our hearts. Our inner man. Let's look at the list on your outline. And let's notice how it mirrors the parental concerns that we've just listed. See, I'll read you the verses and then you can just jot down key words as I read them. There's nutrition and I have there Luke four four. And Jesus answered him saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. There's protection, and Second Thessalonians 3.3 3 says, But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. There's proper housing. And Psalm 91.1 says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Clothing. Romans 13.14 says, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. There's education, and we all know 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Here it is. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And finally, discipline, 2 Timothy 1-7 says, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a power, a spirit of power, of love, and of discipline. We know that the Bible is thorough, don't we? It's accurate. It's complete. It's the tool that we need in order to live gospel transformed lives. And you know, just as any child needs consistent, ongoing, and meaningful times with her parent. so we need consistent, ongoing, and meaningful times with our Heavenly Father. And so, ladies, wouldn't we be wise to just step back and assess how we're doing in our heart parenting, or heart shepherding, as we call it? Wouldn't we be wise to ask ourselves questions such as, Am I really making sure that I am getting everything I need in order to grow and be strong in my walk with Jesus? Am I really being diligent to get the nutrition, the care, the protection, everything that's on your list, the shelter and the clothing and the discipline that my heart needs and can only get by meeting with God daily in his word. Am I? Now, I'm not asking these questions to make us feel bad. Instead, I pray that we'll use these questions to ask God to reveal to us ways in which he is well-pleased and ways in which we do need to change. Always remembering Philippians 2, 13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know, we've all seen those packages that say handle with care, right? Well, as you recall from the lesson we had on prayer, we cannot and we should not attempt to shepherd our hearts without care and without what? Prayer, right? Prayer is so vitally important. Look at it in the back of your binder. It's the second word in discipline, one, the heart. See, she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Sisters, let's make sure that we haven't been reading our Bibles. We like to say this just to check off that box on our to-do list. I did that for years. But let's be careful. That we're carefully and that we're prayerfully and that we're eagerly taking our hearts before the word of God daily in order to get everything that we need to grow and to mature into likeness of Christ. Now let's move on to discipline two. The home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and for the gospel. So when you think about the word household... What do you think of? What does the word home mean to you? Think about that for a minute. You know, the more important question, the better question, would be for me to ask you this. Um, what does God's word have to say about the home? That's the better question. Because home most certainly is. It's the place we can kick off our shoes, we can put on our comfy sweats, right? We can relax, we can regroup. That's true. But we know that for Christians, oh, home is much more. Home is the place where we get to live out what? The gospel, right? To whom? To all who are living in our home and all who come and visit our home. See, focusing on the gospel will help us eagerly desire to imitate Christ and his sacrificial service. And so then the home is not about just, oh, being yourself and doing whatever you want. It's about being Christ's hands and his feet, which humbly and sacrificially serve others. How? Out of love. Why? Because of the gospel. Well, today's lesson is all about the home. So let's think about these two questions. How can we effectively live out the gospel in our homes? And how can we intentionally see to it that our lives are truly centered on the gospel? So effectively and intentionally are the key words here. Well, here's the answer. Our priority must be a heart that is for God and for the gospel. It must be and that takes me to discipline three, the ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Some of you might know my husband, Jeff. He's a physical therapist and he works with um, elderly people. Um, A lot of his patients have dementia and a lot have Alzheimer's disease. Um, Do you know what people with memory problems are like? Have you seen them? They oftentimes get agitated. Um, They get frightened. They forget what they've just read or what they've just said. They get lost. Um, Their mind wanders. Well, sisters, we in the church need to understand, guess what? We ourselves are prone to what can be called spiritual dementia. Okay, what does that look like for us? Okay? we get agitated, we get frightened, we forget this is not our home. And our mind wanders away from the gospel. That's why we need each other to be reminders of the gospel because just like Jeff's patience, we are prone to forget. See, the Bible instructs us over and over and over again To remember. I'm just going to give you a few verses that talk about that. Psalm 103.2. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And then Psalm 105.5 says, Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels, and the judgments uttered by his mouth. And finally, there's Psalm 119.55. It says, Lord, I remember your name. In the night that I may keep your law. See, discipline three is a very intentional discipline and is the natural outpouring of the Holy Spirit's work in you to be a vehicle of his grace in the lives of other sisters in the Lord. So practically speaking, what does this look like? Well, we've all seen a sponge soaked in water, right? We poke it, and what comes out? Water, right? Well, we can be a sponge for each other. Will you be a sponge for me? Will you love me with the gospel? Will you help me remember? Will you soak yourself, please, in the word of God daily so that when we get together, gospel juices flow out of you? Will you encourage me when I need it? Will you love me enough to spur me on when I need that? Ladies, I don't know about you, but I've never seen a cowboy wearing spurs that are wrapped in bubble wrap. Have you? You know, spurs, they're meant to be just uncomfortable enough, right? To get that horse back on track, moving along the right path. It's The discomfort is just necessary enough to produce the right results. Will you by God's grace, love me enough to do that? Will you, by his grace, spur me on toward the gospel when I've forgotten? You know, I'm going to try to do the same for you. As together, we step out into the church to shepherd each other toward God and the gospel, even as we minister to those in our household with a heart for God and the gospel. Why? Because... We have been prayerfully shepherding our hearts toward God through the Word of God, and in particular, the Gospel. So we better pray. Join me, please. Lord God, we thank you so much that you have given us your Word, that you have given us as our Heavenly Father everything we need so that we can parent our heart, and shepherd our heart towards you every day, no days off. We thank you so much for that, Lord. And we do pray that we would spur one another on and help each other not to forget, because we do know we are prone to forget. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I mentioned a few minutes ago this morning, we're going to focus on the home, because the home is very much on God's mind. And today we're going to discover what the Word of God says about the household and household relationships. We're going to see how disciplines one and disciplines two are connected and how they are intertwined throughout the entire scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Today I was thinking of that when I was putting on my necklace. It's connected, right? So we have discipline one and discipline two connected we're going to see nine character categories that help us see god's heart for scripture in household relationships we're going to find examples in the bible uh, including women they've grasped a heart they've grasped god's heart for the household and guess what so sorry to say we're going to see a lot of people that haven't and we're going to see the impact and the consequences that these people's choices, both the positive and then the negative, have had across the generations. And then finally, it's my desire that this lesson will remind us to encourage each other and to persevere in the call and the privilege to cultivate Christ-centered homes. Well, that's a lot of stuff, right? And this is a survey lesson, and we're going to go fast. And we're going to discover a lot of passages in the, in the Bible to gain a full sense of God's heart for the home. So with every survey lesson, we start in the Old Testament and we work our way to the new. We go back and forth because starting from the old to the new, that's how God gradually unfolds his revelation to us. We're going to work our way from the back to the front so that we get a full sense of his heart. Okay, are you ready? Because we're going to be covering a lot of ground. So keep in mind, you know, i got to go fast. I don't want to keep us here till noon. I can't. So you, you yeah. might not be able to flip through every um, verse quickly. So just go with the flow, okay? So, Because we're going to fly over some of those verses. We're going to hover over some. And then some we're going to actually drop down and land and walk around in them. And I'll try to keep the pace fast, but uh, keep it hopefully manageable. So let's roll up our sleeves, okay? And let's get going. Let's look at number one. It's called the relationship between the heart and the household, or I'm sorry, the relationship between the heart and household relationships. So we're going to begin looking at Mosaic Law. Now we have to remember, as Christians, we're not under Mosaic Law. Okay, here's an example. We don't obey the command, honor your father and your mother because it's in the Ten Commandments. But we do obey it. Why? Because Jesus taught it. Remember in Matthew 15? See, Scott Maxwell explains it this way. He says, that doesn't mean it has no value under Mosaic law. It does have value because it reveals God's heart. All of scripture is revelation. All of scripture is profitable. And all of scripture in the Old Testament provides examples. We're going to look at a lot of examples today. So we, but when it comes to understanding uh, what to do in regards to our household relationships, we want to obey for the right reasons under Christ. We exalt Christ and he is greater than Mosaic law. So the first stopping point is Exodus 20, where we'll see what God is revealing to us in scripture about the connection between the heart and household relationships. So, by the time we get to verse 12 in Exodus 20, we're right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Okay, verse 12 is, as a matter of fact, right in the middle. It's the fifth command. So, the first four commandments, as you recall, they're concerned with Israel's relationship with God. Okay, how do they go? They're vertical, right? And then, there are commandments that are horizontal specifically focusing on relationship between people. And this is right here where those commandments turn to that. Look at Exodus twenty twelve. It says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So let's notice, this is the first human relationship that God deals with. And what kind of relationship is it? Do you see it? It's the parent-child relationship. Specifically, the way parents are to respond to their fathers and their mothers. Then verse 14 says, do not commit adultery. And again, God is focusing on the home. See, he's concerned for the husband-wife relationship. And then drop down <coughs> excuse me, to verse 17. See here, God is concerned that Israel think rightly about their neighbor's households. When he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Israel was supposed to be very, very concerned, right? Right? that they weren't looking wrongly at another person's household. So here we are in the Ten Commandments, and the first four commandments address Israel's relationship to God, and then the very next thing God addresses is the household. Three times in the last six commandments, God had very specific expectations for the home. Do you see that as God is giving the Mosaic Law, he's thinking about these basic foundational relationships? What's on God's mind? The home. All right, friends, let's go. Two books over to Deuteronomy, and we're, we're going to stay in Deuteronomy for a while. Now let's remember, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, but what happened? They rebelled so they wouldn't take pos- so they wouldn't get to take possession of the land that god was given them so they wandered through the wilderness 40 long years they weren't allowed to go into the land until that generation that rebelled against god died off so now 40 years later moses is talking to the children who have grown up and who were told originally to honor their parents. So here we are at the very end of Moses' life, and he's reteaching them the law (laughs) prior to their going into the promised land. All right, let's skip over Deuteronomy 4 and go to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 on your outline there. These verses are called the Shema. They mean to hear, to listen, and to obey from Hebrew. So, as we read, let's note the verbs and the references to the heart. Let's notice how God wants Israel to show their commitment to him by loving him with all that they are, no exceptions. Okay, we're going to look for those verbs. (coughs) Excuse me. Hear, O Israel. I'm in verse 4. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. There's discipline one, right? These words, verse 6, which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Okay, what is he saying? He's saying that the words of God in your heart are to come in contact with one another. Okay, that's discipline one also. What does he say next? Let's look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them. When? When you sit down. When you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as signs on your hands, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. And there is discipline too. So how would you restate God's heart for the household after what we just read? Here's what we could say. Israel, everything you do in your houses from lying down when you go to sleep, to getting up from sleep, to just walking and talking on the way. As you leave your house and you're headed out for the day, guess what? There is the word of God. And as you come home to your houses, there is the word of God. Your houses, Israel, your houses are to be dominated by your concern for what? The word of God. (laughs) Let's be sure that you and I grasp that inseparable connection that followed right on the heels of what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Notice God's intent, it's not just for that generation either, is it? He's saying, uh-uh, it's not just for you. You must also do what? Teach, right? Teach it to your children. And do you see how this follows closely on the heels of, very important, caring for your own soul? So God's heart has always been that we would take care of our own heart with his word But it doesn't stop there. And tell it to our children. See, discipline one and discipline two, they're inseparable. So let's go over one chapter now to Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5. And we're going to see another requirement that God places on the older generation. In verses 1 through 3, Israel are told that when they enter the promised land, okay, here's what they are to do. Destroy the inhabitants totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Let's look at verse 3. Deuteronomy 7, verse 3. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Okay. Why on earth so radical? Verse 4 tells us, for they will turn your sons away from following me and serve other gods. Would you please put a little star by that verse? Because we're going to see it played out in history of Israel in just a few minutes. Let's notice, though, the dire consequences of allowing daughters and sons to intermarry with those of another god. What happens? Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. So who's responsible who's responsible for obeying? mm-hmm it was on all the adults right to obey so first all the adults to obey God by not intermarrying and then do you see it? specific adults the parents? to not allow their children to intermarry. So first, adults, don't intermarry. Parents, don't allow your children to intermarry. So let's not miss the heart issue behind this burden. Do you see it? Children get their hearts turned away from God when they get into a marriage relationship with somebody who has another God. See, over and over again, we're seeing the inseparable connection between what Israel does with their hearts and the impact that it makes on the next generation. Wow. I want you to notice also, this is a two-way street. See, what's going on in our home, it does influence our heart. In the same way that our heart does influence what's going on in our home. And we're going to see the heart's influence again in our next passage. And that is Psalm 78, 1 through 8, down there at the bottom of the page. And as we read this, let's count how many generations are addressed here. Starting at verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. Verse 5 For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to see it, their children. Verse 6 That the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born. Right, that they may arise and tell them to their children. Wow, okay, so let's count how many we have here. Okay, first there are the ancestors, and then second, the people in the current generation, and then third, the children yet to be born, and then their grandchildren. So that's four generations. Wow, so finally we get to verse seven, and that reveals what we are all supposed to tell. Here it is that they should put their confidence in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So, ladies, what's the main concern? It's the next generation, isn't it, that they all must know God. They must know that he's trustworthy and that they can put their confidence in him and that they are to obey him. See, these illustrations, or I'm sorry, these Israelites are not to follow the examples of their parents who failed to shepherd their hearts, who quickly forgot about God and who were disloyal to him. Look at what God says about their hearts. He declared that their hearts were stubborn. Do you see it? And rebellious. And now, even though this passage addresses Israel, we need to know from God's word that God cares about our hearts and the impact that we make on the next generation. It is unmistakable. See, we are all responsible to declare the truths about God to ourselves and to the next generation. And we're not to separate God's concern for our hearts and his concern for our homes. Our hearts and our homes go together. And so let's go to the last book. If you flip your page, we're on the top of number two. We're going to go to Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament right before Matthew. Now, God is telling Israel what will precede Christ's return. In Malachi 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So God is saying he's going to come and smite everything. And one of the ways that they can be ready is to strengthen their families. God's heart is strongly inclined toward the home. It is really important in his mind. And you see that Luke 1 reference right there in your outline. That's where you find the fulfillment of Malachi 4 in John the Baptist. John was to make certain that Israel did not miss the household relationships and God's heart for the household relationships continue to be displayed in the New Testament. So let's go there. Let's turn to uh, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. And we're going to see again how God has this inseparable relationship between the heart and the home. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first command with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, This is a repeat of the fifth commandment. It is now brought under the authority of Christ for his church. So first Paul addresses our role as children. Obey your parents, right? How? In the Lord. Okay. We must shepherd our hearts well in the gospel so as to obey and honor our parents in a way that will honor the Lord with the right inward attitude as well as the right outward actions. In our tone, our face, our posture. And then in verse 4, talks to the fathers Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, parents in particular must be faithful with discipline and instruction in the Lord. Why? So as not to frustrate their children. And all of us, as we interact with the next generation, not just our kids, our grandkids, I'm talking kids in the church too, as we live out God's word and hold out God's word to them, we need to remember that it's the only thing that gives wisdom, right? That leads to salvation, We need to remember that the next generation needs the gospel. And so our survey now is going to take us five books to the right to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In verses 1 through 3, Paul is instructing Timothy regarding the church. It's crucial for the church to have leaders who are qualified to lead and who can set an example for the rest of the body. Now as we look at it, let's notice... How much emphasis is placed on the heart and on the home? So Paul is showing us that household relationships are a measure of a man's qualifications to lead. And here's why. If he's going to be part of what God is doing in the world, especially in the church, how could he not be concerned about his household? See, this is very near and dear to God's heart. Now, I'll read from 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So in other words, if he plays leapfrog, as Scott Maxwell loves to say, right? Over his household relationships, why on earth would you put him in charge of the church? You see, if he doesn't know how to shepherd the little flock that lives in his home, he can't shepherd the big flock. See, if he's not faithful in the little things, he's not going to be faithful in the big things. So here we see that the relationship between the heart and the household is tight. God is very concerned to tie them both together tightly. Well, what about us women, ladies? How does the Bible uh, address our connection between the heart and our household relationships? We're going to move over two books now to the right. We're going to look at Titus, um, whose major thrust is on equipping the churches in Crete to be effective Christians. Now, we're really familiar by now with Titus (laughs) 2. 3-5. Three through five. We're going to look at it again and let's notice the emphasis on the household. Starting at verse three older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious, malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind. Being subject to their own husbands so the word of God may not be dishonored. Okay, what's the main concern here? Look at the last ten words. So that the, the word of God, right, will not be dishonored. It's the word of God. Here's what we need to see. A woman's faithfulness. In household relationships, and in godly character, which flows out of a heart that seeks God in his word, is of great significance. I'm going to say that again. A woman's faithfulness in her household relationships, and in godly character, which flows out of a heart that seeks God in his word, is of great significance. Why? Here it is. Because it impacts the way others speak of God's word. Wow, this is so important. Well, we have to move along. So we're right now on number two, page two, number two. One Old Testament woman who grasped God's word for the family and for the home. We're going to begin back in the Old Testament now again, and we're going to talk about Ruth. She's a woman who grasped God's heart for the family and for the home. So historically speaking, Ruth's life took place at a time before the kings in Israel, when the judges ruled. I don't know how many of you are at judges yet in your reading plan, but it ends very sadly with these words, in those days... There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Yeah, Sadly, because there was no submission to the authority of God, people, even priests, did as they thought was right in their own eyes. And thus what happened? Sin was rampant. (laughs) And then, you know what? In the midst of this dark period of history, we get a treat we get Ruth. She was a very virtuous woman. She lived in troubled times, and she faced trials of her own terrible grief, and yet she clings to God. Let's look. In Ruth 1, we find a Jew named Elimelech who takes a wife, Naomi, and his sons, and they move to Moab because there was a famine in Israel. And then Elimelech dies, and after that, His sons marry Moabite women, and then both sons die. And that's hard, isn't it? Can you imagine what life must have been like for Naomi? But then Naomi hears that the famine back home in Israel is over. And so she decides to go home, to go to Bethlehem. But before she leaves, she encourages her two daughters-in-law to stay in Moab, in their own land, with their own people, their own language, their own culture, why? Well, who knows? She thinks, you know, in time they might even find new husbands. So Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, accepts the counsel. And you know what? We never hear from her again. But Ruth, what happens with Ruth? She's determined, isn't she, to cling to Naomi, her mother-in-law. Look at Ruth one sixteen through 17, where she makes a really bold declaration of faith. Do not... Urge me to leave you or turn back from following you? For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. (laughs) Wow. Did you get the importance of Ruth's decision? She didn't want to stay in Moab, she didn't want to go back to those Moabite gods. She declares that Naomi's God, Yahweh, the one true God, is her God. Now let's read what she says next. We're in verse 17. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw she was determined to go, she said no more to her. See, in Ruth's mind... To have Yahweh as her, as her God meant being devoted to her mother-in-law. Isn't that amazing? Ruth is a beautiful role model of a woman whose heart for the one true God was first demonstrated by her loving, her widowed mother-in-law. Now that same mother-in-law who, by the way, told her, What? Go back to Moab. And the Moabite gods and find a husband. And that same mother-in-law who by her own admission was a very bitter woman. You see that in verse 20. See, she returns to Bethlehem and the other women say, they look at her and they don't recognize her. They say, is this Naomi? She says, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. See, she's not just bitter. Who's she bitter at? Right? God. See, there's a sense of entitlement we see here, kind of like, I deserve better. But you know what? This proud, bitter woman is family. That It's the family that Ruth chose to love. Even though Ruth was a foreigner, and even though she had no guarantees that she would ever marry, ever marry, or have children, her love for God drove her to Naomi. And so from the book of Ruth, we know she went on to marry Boaz. It's a beautiful love story. And they had a child named Obed. And I want you to listen to what the women say to Naomi after Obed, her grandson, is born. And that's in chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And this same Obed wound up being whose grandpa? Do you remember? Right, King David's. (laughs) Well, I wish we could say, and we'd be done on that happy note. But, you know, sadly, we have to move on to numeral three, Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the home and the family. Okay, now there are lots of references there, but we're going to focus on the last two. So please turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. And I'm going to give you a little context while you're turning there. So God made David king over all of Israel, all 12 tribes. And David was succeeded by his son Solomon as king. And then after Solomon, the kingdom, it was split in two you have the north and the south. Now the southern kingdom is often referred to as Judah and then the northern kingdom is often referred to as Israel. And Israel was plagued with one bad king after the other. And then Jezebel comes along 75 years after Solomon died. So let's pick up the narrative in 1 Kings 16:30 through 33. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. Now remember that star... That I said, let's put that by Deuteronomy 7, 4. See, where God didn't want the Israelites to allow their children to intermarry because their hearts would be turned away from serving him. Okay, here we see it. Ahab, he was already so used to idolatry, he didn't even flinch at taking Jezebel for his wife. She was a foreign idol-worshipping princess. Oh, (laughs) oh no, right? We're going to see the progression of hard hard, heart hardening here. Because once Ahab tipped Jezebel, what did this wretched king do? Let's look at 1 Kings sixteen thirty-two. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah then, thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now scripture tells us what kind of wife Jezebel was. She was a woman who hated God and she did all she could do to eradicate God's prophets from the northern kingdom. She was a woman who had murder on her heart. And she thought only of doing what would benefit her. See, it's no secret that Israel was plagued with idolatry all throughout her history. But you know, most of the time, Israel paid some kind of lip service to God, you know, but not Jezebel. She wanted to destroy worship of Yahweh. And her husband Ahab, guilty, equally as guilty. Let's look at First Kings, well, don't look, I'll just tell you. First Kings 21. Um, describes him as a pouty, temperamental, and moody, and egotistical king. And it says, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. Yikes. Well, one day, here's the story, Jezebel finds out her husband Ahab is sullen and vexed. He's that a lot. Um, here's the reason why this time. There's a man named Naboth who had a vineyard. And he wouldn't sell his vineyard to Ahab. So, Jezebel takes matters into her own hands and she schemes and she lies and she finally has Naboth killed. Now remember, he was an innocent man, right? Why did she do that? So her husband could Acquire a piece of property, a chunk of land, right? A piece of real estate, yeah. <laughs> so about she had no regard for the ways of God because let's remember that in Israel, land, you weren't supposed to sell it. Land was supposed to stay in the family. Mm-hmm. See, it's a trivial thing for her to take a man's life and to rob the family of his inheritance. See, this family, they spawned evil that was their home a place that spawns evil even against one another see they have rejected any semblance of God's heart for the household see there's pervasive rottenness and sadly it's spreading so now please turn to 2nd Kings 11 where eventually Ahab and Jezebel had a daughter named Athaliah Now let's read and find out what kind of daughter these two had. What kind of daughter did they produce? Okay, so we're going to now take our story from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom called Judah. Athaliah married Joram, king of Judah. And I'm going to pick up the narrative, 2 Kings 11, 1 through 3. Athaliah and Joram have a son named Ahaziah. And after their son is killed, his mother, Athaliah is so, jealous, so zealous to rule as queen mother and control Judah that, verse 1, what did she do? She rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. Okay, yikes, did you get that? She killed her own grandchildren so that she could sit on the throne. D.A. Carson writes the following about this evil woman, Athaliah. She is the utterly vile mother of Ahaziah, king of Judah, who was killed. Okay? One could imagine a lot of different actions that a queen mother might take on learning of the assassination of her son. Athaliah's reaction, kill the entire family. So she commands the palace guards, ensuring that her dead son's children and grandchildren are wiped out. Except, unbeknownst to her, for her infant grandson, Joash, who was saved, da by his aunt, Jehosheba. She could have been killed herself for doing that. She secretly hides him uh, with his wet nurse. Okay. Thus, Athaliah secures power for herself. So here we have a count of two women who are related to each other. Okay, So we have the wretched grandmother, Athaliah, who would murder her own grandchildren, and the other, the God-fearing aunt, Jehosheba, uh, who will risk her own life in order to save her nephew from his grandmother's murderous tyranny, and who, in thus doing, spares the divinic lineage. You can read about her in Second Kings 11. Oh, man, you know what? It's really easy to be appalled, I know, and totally repulsed by Athaliah's wicked behavior. But here's what we should not miss. We need to be on guard for our own hearts and our own households because, ladies, apart from God's intervening work in our lives, we know that our own hearts can become quickly hardened, self-grasping, self-serving, even murderous, As we quickly get angry and frustrated with our roommates, our children, our husbands, our parents, our guests, other family members, anyone in our household who gets in the way of our reigning as queen mother in our own homes, thinking it's our roost to rule. Okay, let's remember... We came into the world with that very same sinful heart that they did. But that's why, ladies, we must guard our heart. We must lay our hearts bare before the word of God. And we must plead for a heart for our household that matches God's so that we can carry the same burden and the same concern for the home that he has You know what? The fact is, we will impact our home and our family. We will. The question is, how? Right. So we started looking at the connection between the heart and household relationships in Scripture. We saw the way Ruth's heart for God impacted her household in a beautiful way. And now we've just seen how destruction, or how destructive it is when there is rejection of God's heart for the household. So let's move on to number four, the ease at which God is forgotten in the home. Now context-wise, we're back in the plains of Moab where Moses is reteaching the law to Israel. This is just 40 years after they left slavery and long before they had a king. And what is the dire warning when life is good, when you're on easy street, when nobody is rocking your boat? Let's look. Okay, Deuteronomy six, ten through 12. Let's find out what Moses is warning them about. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and cisterns, hewn cisterns, which you did not dig vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant and you eat and are satisfied, then watch for yourself. Watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Deuteronomy eight ten through 20 is full of words of caution and warning and heart shepherding. So let's turn there. And begin reading in verse 10, chapter 8. When you have eaten and are satisfied and you bless the Lord, your God, for the good land which he has given you, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding. So what's the danger, ladies? What will happen to the heart that is not properly guarded? Okay, look at verse 14. Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So when we're in a comfortable situation and things are going well, that is the time to beware, to be mindful, right? Of God's warnings because otherwise we might deceive ourselves. Look with me at verse 17. Otherwise, you may say, my power and strength of my hand made me this wealth." You see it? Christian, we must understand the household, that very same place of blessing, can be the exact same place that what? Forgets? Forgets that it is God who is the blessing giver. See, it's very easy to forget God in the home. But thankfully, thankfully, in Christ, the household can become a platform for impacting everyone else in the, in the household with the gospel. See, the next generation needs to hear us talking often about how grateful we are for God's provision. Now, please hear me, because I'm not talking about stuff. Uh, because if we don't cultivate a heart of thankfulness for the gospel... We may find ourselves living as if our greatest treasures and blessings are what ought, what belong to us, rather than the treasure of us belonging to God. So let's move on to number five, the impact of one's faith on the entire household. How are you doing? You're doing all right? We're moving fast, um, but let's keep going. Let's go to Acts 16. And you can read in Acts 10 about Cornelius on your own and read about how Cornelius brings the gospel and his household together. In Acts 16, 13, Paul makes his way to Philippi on his second missionary journey. On the Sabbath day, I'm reading from verse 13, chapter 16. We went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying... If you had judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So what's happening? Lydia had her heart opened by the Lord. And that made a huge impact on her whole household. They were baptized. See, Lydia brings the gospel and her household together. Now let's look down in verse 29. We'll see the same thing with the Philippian jailer. So, you remember the background. There was an uprising, and Paul and Silas get thrown in jail, and they're singing at night, and there's the earthquake, and the jailer's about to thrust the sword into his belly because he's going to be killed anyway if his prisoners escape. And Paul says, No, stop! Right? He says, Don't, don't, because we're all here. And what does the jailer do? Acts sixteen twenty-nine. He called for the lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, and he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, importantly, together with all that were in his house. And what happened? They took them that very hour and washed their wounds. And, or he took them and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized. He and his whole household who heard and, were, and believed and were saved. You see the jailer, do you see it? He brings the gospel and his household together. And they're saved and they're baptized. And then he brought them in the house, verse 34. And set food before them and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with this whole household. So they have their first small group meeting right there, right? (laughs) In the house, rejoicing greatly in their salvation. Notice the impact that just one person has made on the household. See, in all these instances, the household, it's the first place of impact. Sisters, God desires to use us the same way, doesn't he? He desires to have us bring the gospel and our household together each and every day. We know we need to do that effectively. How? By loving the Lord Jesus Christ because of his word. We need to feed daily on his word. But there are also attacks that happen on the home, right? Number six, the attack on the home. So let's head over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as you're turning there... Second Timothy 3, I want to ask you this question. Since there's such a link between the heart and the home, is it any surprise that the home is a place of constant attack by the enemy? Shouldn't be a surprise, should it? Let me read from verse 1, 2 Timothy 3. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be. Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness. Although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down by sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Avoid such men as these. 2 Timothy 3.5 Paul tells Timothy that they creep into houses and capture weak women sisters that's the terminology you think of a a creep i mean a crook right a real creep (laughs) a thief a robber they creep around and they capture now of course we christian women we wouldn't be so gullible as to open our door to a salesman and a cheap overcoat selling lies and deception and ungodliness are we no, but you know what? The deceiver, he's much cleverer than that. Because, of course, if it were really that obvious, we'd slam the door, lock it twice, say, No, 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 nobody's coming into my home like that. We'll never allow anything like that to come into our homes. We live for Jesus, after all, right? We aren't like those weak women described in 2 Timothy 3 1 through 8. Well, let's see what we know about those weak women. Let's look down, uh, starting in the middle of verse 6. They're weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. What are they doing? They're always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. See, evidently, there are women in these households. They don't know how the gospel addresses their sin because they're weighed down by their sin. They don't know how the gospel addresses or dethrones their impulses. Their desires and changes them for godly desires. They aren't equipped with the gospel to know how to deal with those sinful desires. And here's another thing they're always learning something, but it's not heart shepherding to the Word of God to get to know the knowledge of the truth. And so, what are they? They're They're vulnerable, aren't they? Vulnerable to attack, and that's why we need to be vigilant to protect our home against things that come looking benign and harmless. You might want to write down 2 Corinthians 11.13 as a reference to look up later. Here Paul um, warns, For such men are apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of light. See, a lot of us have a welcome mat in front of our front door, right? (laughs) Well, let's be careful what we're welcoming in, ladies. See, we need to use the Word of God to evaluate everything that we're opening our doors wide to and saying, come on in, make yourselves at home. I'm talking about scrutinizing everything we read, everything we watch, everything we listen to, computer, radio, iPad, iPod. We need to put it all under the authority of the Bible. Let's not be fooled either. We've learned about this, thankfully, at the retreat by something that has the label Christian in front of it. See, we all need to do our due diligence. And the only way we can be equipped to do that rightly is by living out discipline one. See, the world is a pleasure-seeking, pleasure-worshipping world, isn't it? And unfortunately, we're often too eager to follow along, not realizing that in doing so, we're missing the ultimate pleasure of knowing and obeying our God. That's why Psalm 1611 is listed on your outline. And it says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand our pleasures forever. But we also need to be on guard for exalting our household above the gospel. So please turn with me to Matthew 10, 34 through 39. And we're on number seven now on our outline. So Christian, if I asked you what's more important than our identity as women, wives, mothers, daughters, sisters, grandmothers, mothers-in-law... You fill in the blanks. What would you say? What's more important than our identity than that? Well, it's our identity in Christ. And there are many verses for you to look up on your own this week. And I'm going to recap the main idea for us here. See, our identity in Christ is who we are first and foremost. And then everything else falls under that identity, including our families. And that's why I have the illustrations for you there. See, Jesus makes a strong point that the gospel of the kingdom is first, and then everything else is second, including our families. You come follow me, is what he says in Matthew 10, 34 through 39. See, first one person is in the household, he comes to Christ, and then they're called to take the gospel to their family. And sometimes... That's what we see in the New Testament, a whole household coming to Christ. Praise God. But Jesus is teaching that, you know what, that's not always the case. When we bring the gospel to our family, we might actually find that members of our household become our enemies. And if the family begins to stand in the way of the gospel, that believer must follow Christ and not the family. And this is important even while she stays in the family, seeking to display the changes that Christ has made in her as she loves her family and serves her family and forgives. I need to keep reminding myself my identity is in Christ and in no one and in nothing else. And that's why I can love and esteem those that are closest to me, regardless of how they react because of the gospel's impact on my life. Do you see how Jesus helps us to put household relationships in their proper connection with our kingdom identity? See, in Matthew 12, 50, he says, Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. He's helping us understand household relationships in their proper relationship so what practical difference does it make it makes all the difference in the world getting the direction of influence is vital see if i put my household connect identity first and then my identity in christ what might you hear me say you might hear me say something to excuse my behavior You might hear me say, well, that's just the way I was raised. My my family, they always argue. Quick tempers, they run in my family, we're Irish. Um, My dad never praised me, etc. But when I place my household identity and my family identity under my identity in Christ, then it's Christ's work in me that gets brought into the household and not the other way around. See, our identity in Christ, it's bigger than our household and family identity, and that needs to be the direction of our influence. So let's quickly move on to submission. To a husband requires a strong grasp on the gospel. In Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, you can turn there if you want, It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. See, when we think of marriage, we're to think of Christ and the church. See, married or not... We're to be the kind of women who treasure and support and build up marriage in the way we think about marriage, in the way we talk about marriage, in the way that we respond to marriage. And understanding that changes everything. It changes submission from being, oh, that dreaded word, as the world says, to that beautiful word picture, doesn't it, of how Christ, again, And again, submitted himself to the will of the Father, just as husbands are to submit themselves to the headship of the Lord, and wives are to submit themselves to the leadership of their husbands. We believers are to submit to Christ in everything because of all that he has done for us through his shed blood on the cross. And that's why rehearsing the gospel is so good for us so if you have a husband your husband is your leader and at those times when we struggle to trust our earthly leader you know what? we still can follow him why? well because our heavenly leader Jesus he's always trustworthy isn't he? he's sovereign and he's good and that is where we rest our confidence in submitting to our husbands And where we encourage each other to do likewise. And so finally, number nine, we get to a New Testament model marriage, Priscilla and Aquila. We don't have much time to talk about them. But just let me tell you about this dynamic duo was used by Paul so well. He even says that they risked their lives him for the gospel this was an impressive marriage one of the things you can remember about priscilla and aquila is that they were useful in the gospel because they were able to help a brother named apollos to understand he was deficient in doctrine and they right there the two of them helped apollos understand the gospel this was an impressive marriage and this is how our marriages can be Wow! Well, we made it, ladies. By the skin of our teeth, we reached the end of our Bible survey. So how would you summarize what we've seen? We've seen that the woman who loves God places a priority on the spiritual influence of her household with her heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know why? That's why we put Discipline 1 right there before discipline too. We can't get past it. There's no room anywhere in scripture to wriggle around that. We've seen that our responsibility is to bring the gospel aroma to the rest of our households. It is a responsibility to use the gospel to guard and protect our households. And it is our responsibility to root out false thinking or any thinking that is devoid of the gospel that could come in and deceive us and poison us and our families, the next generation. See, our home should be a place where God would love to bring people to himself, people who live there and people whom you make feel at home as they visit. Don't we want our households to be like that? Don't you want to encourage our friends and children to have Homes like that, a place where he would love to work and to bring others to Christ. You know, we said in the beginning, the household is um, it's a place of our biggest failure. So I hope you're not sitting there going, oh, that's not me, because I want to leave you with this encouragement. You know what? Our hope is not in ourselves, right? Our hope is in the grace of God. That grace is He's lavished on us. We need to remember that. That same grace that saves us, it's the same grace that sanctifies us and restores what has been torn down. It's all in God's grace. And with that, I'm going to pray and then we can go to our groups. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, we need you. We need to get our eyes on you. We need to put ourselves under the authority of the gospel. We need to remember how important it is not only to shepherd our own hearts well, but to bring the gospel to the next generation. Whether we have children or not, Lord, they are looking at us. Help us remember the way we act points to you. Oh, Lord, we need you. Thank you that you supply everything we need to live a life that is pleasing to you. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.